All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? Are you okay? I'm okay, I think. I don't know, man. Some days, you know. I just, uh, well, I guess the other day, I was on Conan O'Brien's show. I, I don't know if you caught that. Before I go off on that or talk about it in any real way why don't we do this i'm at the majestic theater in dallas texas tonight then i'll be at the paramount theater in austin texas tomorrow that's friday night and saturday i'm at the wortham theater center go to wtfpod.com slash tour for ticket info and you can also get tickets to my upcoming dates in vancouver seattle toronto chicago detroit minneapolis philadelphia washington dc boston nashville atlanta and san francisco also go to sortoftrust.com if you want to see the movie i'm in find out where it's playing near you you or how you can watch it on demand oh by the way david shields uh is on the show today i don't know if you know him um but uh i'm sort of i was sort of fascinated with the guy and with his writing and i kind of wanted to you know kind of i wanted him to explain himself a little bit somehow I wanted to engage in a conversation with him about it, but I didn't feel very confident about it because he's a professor. He's a, a you know, an intellectual guy, but I, I dug the way he wrote, but I wanted to make sure I was understanding it or, or could I wrap my head around, could I wrap my head around a conversation with this guy? And, and I was like, fuck it, let's do it. Cause I saw his uh, recent documentary called uh, Marshawn Lynch, a history And that's available on iTunes and Amazon and Vimeo. And he's written a lot of books. Uh, The most recent is The Trouble with Men, Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power. He wrote a book about Trump before that. Kind of, he writes in a very specific way called Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump, An Intervention. I have his coffee table book, War is Beautiful. But there's there's a way he structures things. Look, I'll get into this with him. I, I'm just saying I was a little intimidated and going into it. And I've kind of, I kind of put this off talking to him, but it turned out to be great. I enjoyed talking to him. So as some of you know, the um, Variety magazine, the show business magazine, ran a big cover story on podcasting and Conan was on the cover and they kind of framed it as the podcasting revolution. And, uh, you know, and... It's fine. I've seen these articles before. I mean, I've been doing this almost 10 years. Uh, They've written articles like that on me, not in Variety, but they've they've certainly written pieces on me in Variety. Not that this is a competition or anything else, but it just felt like, all right, so there's a reason, right? I'm no big believer in the big unknown syncing up. I'm not a uh, things happen for a reason guy or, hey, this must be kismet or synchronicity or it's meant to happen. But the article did come out the morning that I'm supposed to do Conan show. So I, I thought maybe I could at least act like I was a little upset. And, uh, and that's always a dicey thing. You know, I, I, I got the, I had them, I, I signed the segment producer signed off on it. And I went out there with the magazine and I'm like, so you're the guy, huh? You're the podcast revolution. And we did a little, had a little fake, uh, kind of, uh, what do you call it? Pissing contest. And uh, but then it just gets like, you know, it's, it's weird. I guess what I'm saying is this. 
you know, Conan and I have been doing our shtick for what? Since 1994. They, he posted the, uh, the first appearance I had on there. Right? 1994. 25 years. And, you know, I've evolved. He's evolved. But there's a very funny thing that's happening with me personally and, and in show business, I guess, in a way is that I'm really not that same guy anymore. I mean, obviously, my success has changed me personally in the sense that, you know, I'm not freaking out all the time that uh, I'm going to run out of money and not have a, a plan B or anything to do. But also, I think personally, I'm, I'm a little different, a little more confident, a little funnier, a little more in control of my talent, a little less neurotic, I believe. But, you know, when you get into a, a dynamic with somebody you've had with them for years, you know, you I, I it was just funny to me that, you know, I get out there, we do our little thing. But it, it was just interesting to me that within a few minutes, even though I'm comfortable and I'm, I'm happier in my life, that him and I fall into this dynamic that we have where I'm like, oh, God, I'm just worked up. I'm alienating the audience. I'm uncomfortable. I'm aggravated. And I am I that am I that way? You guys, am I still that way? Maybe I don't see myself properly, but I do know even in stand-up, and maybe you guys can relate to this in your life, where, look, I, obviously, we're, we're, we're all the same people on some degree. I mean, you can stop doing certain things and you can you know, make different decisions for yourself, but you have the same drive shaft and the same you know, mental uh, uh, machine. But, but you know, as you get older, you, you know, certain things you know, tend to... To, to matter less, you know, certain things matter more, things shift, you know, hopefully you get a little more relaxed and you don't crumble into a cinder of bitterness of some kind. But, but it's weird that when you get used to a certain way of being or you get, and I imagine it's the same when you get used to a certain job and you just keep doing it, that, that even if it doesn't quite jive with who you are at this particular time, you know, you keep doing it because that's what you know. Right. And it's an awkward feeling. It's a little like, you know, who am I comedically if I'm not worked up? You know, is there a way for me to do what I do? And I think I am doing it to a degree. I'm obviously a lot more palatable than I was, you know, a decade or two ago in terms of my comfort level. And really what it comes down to is that, you know, am I honoring myself? Right. Isn't that sort of what we want to do? Isn't that the trick is to honor ourselves the best we can be true to ourselves the best we can but when you got a gig that, you know, is based on an old version of you, what do you do? I'm just saying that I'm at a crossroads, folks. I'm a bit of a crossroads. Not, and I'm, not, I'm not waiting for the devil. I'm not waiting for the devil. I'm just trying to find the courage and figure out exactly, you know, what it is I want to do with my heart and mind, you know, on stage and performance. Sadly, I think I want to just play music and I... That's, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm excited to do comedy. And, you know, you people that are coming out to see me this tour, I've got, I got about a good hour and a half of shit percolating. And some of it's pretty, uh, pretty heavy, pretty good, pretty deeply funny, pretty jarring. But I'm sort of at a crossroads. You know, once this tour is done and depending on what happens with Glow, it might be time for some reflection, maybe do a little service work. Maybe get out there and help some people or maybe just get out into the woods or into the desert. I'm at a crossroads and it might be in the desert and I'm looking for I'm looking for courage. You know what? Maybe I am looking for the devil. So, Satan, if you're listening, uh, I might be ready to negotiate 
again. David Shields. Okay. Here's a little bit about me. Now, now whether you, you know, I, I mean, you know, look, you've known me a while, right? You know, we're not strangers here, right? We're not strangers. So there was a time in my life where when I was in high school, and I've talked about this guy before, when I was in high school, you know, man, junior, senior year of high school, I became, you know, I worked down by the university. I hung out with college kids. I hung out by the university in the, at the Frontier Restaurant and at the Living Batch Bookstore. And there was a guy who owned the Living Batch Bookstore who was a professor and just a general, you know, sort of a wizard. He taught film. He taught art. He taught cultural criticism. He was, uh, he was, that, he was just an intellectual. All right. And I loved him and he was hilarious and he, and he changed my life. He, you know, I, I saw him as a mentor, even though I annoyed him, but I always aspired. I, I thought there was nothing more impressive than to be well-referenced and well-read and be able to integrate uh, broad and intellectual ideas, uh, you know, into conversation. I, I thought that was impressive. And I thought if you could be funny integrating those things, which like he was, that was really the best you could be is to be intellectually sound and well-versed and fucking hilarious. I was like, that's, that's it. Now, sadly, I, I wasn't able to really compartmentalize very well. Everything, I took everything very personally in college in, in the way that I could only really apply a text to my exact experience. I could not separate myself. I could not read philosophy without you know, trying to run it through me. I never understood that there was a, a language, a sort of math to the language of philosophy. I, never, I was just looking for help. I was looking to complete my brain, but I could never really assess and contextualize systems of thought or even math or chemistry, no good. So if it didn't connect to my feelings, I couldn't really grasp it. But I studied film. I studied uh, you know, poetry. I wrote poetry. I studied literature. I took some philosophy. But I never quite grasped it, but I was present for it. So my dream of being an intellectual, once I got to college, I realized I can't even manage a second language here, folks. So the whole sort of like, I'm going to be an intellectual, spend my time in academia, talking about lofty stuff, that started to dissipate. And I could have faked it. I don't think I do fake it. There was a point in time where I, I kind of faked it. But it was not faking in the way where I was presenting myself as knowing things as much as it was presenting myself as I knew what you were talking about. At some point in my life, I realized, okay, you're smart. You do read all the the heavy stuff. You get what you can out of it. And sometimes you blow your own mind and that influences or informs what you're doing, which is fine because I'm a comedian. I'm not an intellectual. And, you know, if I can read the lofty books or I can get a little something out of them, you know, that kind of, you know, tweak my understanding of things, which I do often. Great. That's that's as close as I'm going to be to an intellectual. I seek to understand. I seek to have my mind blown. I seek to put things in a different context than I'm used to seeing. And I, I seek to to grow uh, as a person mentally and 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 uh, intellectually. Fine. Great. And not, a nice poem, too, is good. But at some point, I engaged a very important thing. Uh, that you have to engage is the ability to hear say it with me um i don't know you got to say that like if you don't know you can either sit there and let them project whatever it is onto you they think you know or or they know you don't know or if they ask you if you if someone asks you a question or if you're listening to somebody and you really don't know what they're talking about just say i don't know what you're talking about or if you're frustrated you say i don't know what the fuck you're talking about 
or if you you're hearing it and it doesn't make sense to you and you don't really want to know what it is that they're talking about you go that sounds like bullshit but no i'm joking basically once i learned how to say i don't know i don't know what you're talking about i don't understand that i have no idea what that is uh can you can you tell me or can you tell me what i should see it changed my life it's a big load off not knowing is uh and accepting that big load off so david shields was very intimidating to me because I tried to read his books, but they're not unreadable. They are very readable. They're just, I've only read a few and he's written many, but the, you know, he kind of works in a, uh, he works in bits and pieces. He, they're fragmented. They're not narrative. They're usually, you know, I would say that they're sort of like a longer essay, but he uses bits and pieces of conversations he's heard, bits and pieces of thinkers that he enjoys, bits and pieces of his own thoughts. And he kind of structures the book like that. And it's, it's, if you like reading like aphorisms or sayings, yeah, he finds it's more effective. It's sort of a collage or a montage kind of way of putting text together. And I found it compelling. And I just, I didn't know if I was fully, uh, you know, uh, understanding it or wrapping my brain around it or if I was getting everything I needed to get out of it. And I found it a little intimidating. So I, I didn't know really how to approach Shields because he's a professor. You know, he's like uh, a smart guy and he's a writer. He's written a lot. So when I finally decided to have him on, it was because um, I saw this new documentary, Marshawn Lynch, A History. And this, again, is all bits and pieces. There's no real narration. Every once in a while, there'll be a, a heading of sorts or a saying, you know, to sort of frame the segments. But it's all... I don't know if you'd call it found footage, but it really is mostly found footage of Marshawn talking, of people responding, historical footage, some film footage, TV footage, news footage. It's, it's just, it is a collage of, uh, that's in the form of a montage because it's film. And I found it to be very poetic and very effective and very um, provocative. And then I was like, and you know, I'd been emailing with uh, David. I'm like, let's do it, man. I'm ready. But what you will hear it's me, you know, wrestling with my own intellectual insecurity, but I think I, I think I get through it. And, and I think we connected in a deeper way than I thought. And I think we're kindred spirits in a way. And I'm glad I talked to him. Uh, the documentary I mentioned is called Marshawn Lynch, a history. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, and Vimeo. The most recent book, the trouble with men reflections on sex, love, marriage, porn, and power, which I, I didn't think went deep enough, but that's my you know, opinion. It's still readable. The Trump book, the uh, there's like 20 books, but uh, they're all available. And this is me um, easing in to a conversation with uh, David Shields. How how are you? I'm good. You mean in in what sense? Like, in general, I'm good. Yeah, you know, and I'm willing. You know, I've been enjoying re-listening to shows, and I'm willing. As you you can probably suspect, I'm willing to talk about anything. Yeah, you know, I, the, that's that's my major is confession and intimacy and all that. Well, I don't know what to, sometimes like I I don't know exactly what to do with you. You know, because in my mind, there's a, a, an intimidation factor because I know you're sort of a a, a high level intellectual. On some point, for real. I mean, you're an academic. You're a professor. Like you're a you're writer. Not, you've read the you're same a books. cultural criticism, you're, critis, you're, critic. You've read the same books I have. I haven't read enough of them, and I don't think I've read them as seriously. Well, <laughs> no intimidation. You know, you, I'm intimidated by you. So, really? You know, I think to me, take it. You know, I, I'm. You know, I'm delighted to be here, and we'll talk about any damn thing. All right. Well, I think uh, we could start with we. You know, we are. 
serious sons yeah. of bipolar fathers. Are you really? Yeah. Did, but where'd you grow up? <clears throat> L.A. and San Francisco. So and so, why why those places? What was the uh, the family racket? What was your dad? What was the business? Why were you in those two places? Those are sort of culturally progressive, interesting, right. show busy kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, thinky places. Yeah, that was my family. You <laughs> oh know, yeah, politically active journalists. Oh, they were journalists. Yeah, my mom wrote for the Nation and oh the, really early the on? New Republic. Oh yeah. My dad was a publicist and journalist and sports writer. So, you know, sports was, writer. You know, it was very much a left wing family. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother was part of the first effort to desegregate a, a California school district, and my brother was uh, arrested in a drug ring at Berkeley. You know, in the sixties, he was on the front page of. At the San Francisco Chronicle. Really? Did your mom write the piece? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been the perfect circle. (laughs) So, you know, the family religion was that classic West Coast, secular, Jewish, political engagement, which is both part of me and part of something I've sort of resisted. Yeah? Well, in the sense that that my work is not agitprop, but it explores. Yeah, I know, and I feel that in there. And you know, and and that was sort of like uh, you know one of the questions after I watched the the documentary Lynch a history um, about Marshawn Lynch, who I don't know a lot about. I'm not a sports fan, but like one of the things I, I experienced when I when I've, I have a limited experience with your work, but I, when I get it, I read it. You know, I read the Trump book and I read the uh, the um, the Trouble with Men, and I've had I think you must have sent me War Is Beautiful years ago. And then I got another copy of oh, it. Well, I've had them, uh-huh. and I don't know how I got them, but sure. they come publisher or whatever. Yeah, somebody. And you know, I have this moment where you, where I watch the documentary, which is not traditional in the sense that it's a, it's basically an hour and a half montage of, of found footage. Right. Basically. Right. Right. But there is a, a poetic you know, through line, but and there is sort of an effect of that. And I do believe the message is delivered, you know, uh, in, a, in a way where, you know, you're processing a lot of things. There's a lot of things coming in. But, you know, the idea of, of the black man who does not do what he is expected to do and, you know, the cultural reaction to that is definitely in there and powerful. But given what you're telling me about your past and about uh, agitprop or what have you, you know, my question is, when you do something like this that is powerful and does have a statement and you, you sort of relegate your expression to the world of art, you, you know, who's it for? Who is that film for? Or yeah. who is my work in general for? Right. Well, one could ask that about Hamlet. I mean, one could ask that about okay, anything. Okay. I mean, I think it's an excellent question, but I was actually thinking about that the other day. Yeah. So much of, of my work is obsessed with the relationship between, on the one hand, political engagement, and on uh, the other hand, artistic passion. Like, yeah. so much of my dialectic yeah. is putting those in active warfare. Right. Like, I don't know. I saw Cuz that's within you. It totally is. Because so your your resistance to surrender to art or the context of art as is is established is how your kind of self-loathing manifests itself. That's I mean play that out for me a little bit. I'm not well, sure I'm just I see how that, like, that is self-loathing. A, well, I, I I sense like here here's my my first impulse when when I 
Maybe not self-loathing, but insecurity. No, I'm definitely <laughs> am self-loathing. I, I, well, I, I'll I, totally I, own that, but I, I wasn't sure. Okay, let me let me try to explain <clears throat> it because, like, when I read the things, and I, you know, I'm a guy that likes. I like pieces of poetry. I like you know bits. You know, I like sentences. I like paragraphs. I like uh, uh, what's that guy's name that you must like. Uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Sharon? Yeah, Sharon. Yeah, I'm a huge Sharon. I would assume that you are too. Yeah, but only in the sense that, like, I don't know if I remember a lot of it. I like it when it goes in. You know, I have the feeling. It makes my brain do something. Right. It, there's a, there's a, 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 it's like a joke, a good joke. Exactly. There's, there's a little p- a piece of, uh, of poetry or, or a little observation that kind of resonates, and I, and I have faith that it's probably changing my brain somehow and right. making me look at the world differently. But I just wonder, even in reading, uh, the Trouble with Men, Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power, you know, where you do have the through line of your own sort of wrestling with your, your, your own potentially submissive compulsion, but you don't, you know, you could have written just that book. So, so when I, when I see the way you put these, I guess they're collages, I guess they're bits and pieces of things appropriated, you know, mm-hmm. bits of conversation throughout, you know, the narrative about you and it is about you. You know, I, I ask myself, well, what, what is he compensating for? Why can't he just stay with himself? Interesting. I think that's a fair question. And more than one, one person has asked me why that book goes away from myself as yeah. much as it does. The book's a very short book, maybe 135 pages, maybe 30,000 yeah. words. Of those pages, maybe only 30 pages are actually uh-huh. my thoughts okay. on sex, love, marriage, porn, and power. There must be you know, 75, 80 pages of me quoting from other people. Okay. And you know, I've written a bunch of other books in which I'm more present. Yeah, but right. I think it's a really interesting point. Why is that book as outsourced or almost crowdsourced yeah. as it is? Yeah. And I would just say, I mean, it's a, a tough question. You know, this was as far as I could go. I, th- I still with think yourself in terms of sex and yeah. power. I mean, the epigraph of the book is everything in the world is about sex. Mm-hmm except sex. Mm-hmm. Sex is about power. Yeah. Which is, I think is a pretty powerful idea. I don't know if you agree or disagree or if your audience, obviously it's an absolute statement which is neither true nor false, but it's a thought. Yeah. And the book explores the ways in which sex is a theater of power. It just right. is. And so I feel that the book is, I hope, you know, a powerful investigation of those themes. So even if I'm not saying it and I own that as a statement yeah to me that's as confessional as if I had written it I get that you know I get that well, I, I just sort of was feeling like you know I, I it guess, was sort of like dude tell us more about yourself sort of well, well kind of but like and also I, I think there was something about your exploration of your particular situation or predicament or dynamic with your wife you know around your own sort of like uh uh, you're not. I wouldn't say that you're categorically as submissive. No, it's a very subtle slight. It's yeah. more theoretical than yeah. it is well, like, oh, gee, I want to be whipped and and uh, 
yeah, and Dungeonite. But yeah. you have this thing in your head. And right. There, there is a sort of like, you know, well, well, why hasn't he gone the full way? I know. You know, what is the confession here really? Is this sort of, you know, milk toasty, you know, in terms of your own sort of sexuality? And then you, you add all this other stuff, which is, it's all pretty interesting. But I was wondering, you know, you know more about about you. But that but that but that is not the device, the literary device that you engage in. I mean, it's sort of like saying, I mean, this might be a little too meta for you, but, yeah. you know, it's sort of like, why, you know, what I know of your career, you know, is you were, still are, you know, a stand-up, et cetera. Yeah. And in a way, there's this wonderful line of Ralph Waldo Emerson who says, um, the way to write is to throw your body at the target when all your arrows have been spent. <laughs> it's just sort of beautiful. I'm all about that. And so, the, you know, in a way, you know, your or narrative is, you know, the whatever, you know, the ta- the um, that this quite successful podcast has come out of the burning to the ground, I gather, yeah. of your stand-up career. Yeah. Not to say that you're not still now quite, you know, a successful stand-up. No, it, it, got, it, but it, it, added, it built it. You yeah, know, it came exactly. to this act of desperation. You know, that you threw your body at the wall right. when all your arrows had been spent. Right. And exactly the same way, I had written three novels, relatively conventional. Early in the 80s. Yeah, uh, uh, 84, 89, and 92. A conventional first novel, yeah. a second novel that was a growing up novel about yeah. me growing up with uh, a fairly severe stutter. Yeah. And then a third novel called Handbook for Drowning, a book about my family's politics. Yeah. And then I was trying to write my fourth novel about celebrity and mass culture, trying to write a novel kind of like Don DeLillo's White Noise. That's or, a good book. Or Milan Kundera's Unbearable Lightness of Being. Yeah. Or Renata Adler's Speedboat. And I just found myself colossally bored by all those conventional narrative architectural movements. You know, let's establish plot, let's establish character, setting, long stretches of dialogue. I was just bored out of my mind by but, it. But were you bored reading it? Did you feel like you had, you know, mastered those things or and you just you, you didn't think you could utilize the accepted structure and take it to another level? I mean, those are all fair questions. I don't <laughs> I wasn't like I had mastered them yeah. by any means. I had written three pretty good apprentice novels, yeah. trying to write my fourth book and returning to the West Coast. I felt a huge desire f- for work to have a compression, a concision, and a velocity that a lot of novels and conventional memoirs don't have. You know, that they sag. There's so much dead space in them. <clears throat> I mean, it's sort of, again, I think that we as a, here we are, 2019 America, this hyper-digitalized culture. And, on, on the brink of authoritarianism. Or not even the brink. We're I here. Mean, that we're here. Yeah. And that I'm interested in bringing the news now. You know, like, I think what you're doing, an interesting way, is sort of pushing back, like, okay, how come Trouble with Men is not, you know, a conventional memoir about your, you know... SM marriage or something, or the Trump book, why isn't it, you know, a conventional book by Jane Meyer about, you know, the presidential cabinet, but it's like, I'm trying to turbocharge the culture and the forms to push the forms forward and make them, you know, I think the charge of an artist is to push the form forward. The form. Yeah. Like, for instance, that you admire a lot of stand-up comedians, say, Pryor or whoever, yeah. uh, 
what do we love about them? They weren't just doing Shecky Green. They right. were pushing the form forward. And not to say that I'm necessarily as revolutionary as that, but I'm trying to push the form of prose narrative forward. Well, I guess, like, I, I, I don't know if I was craving conventionality, but, like, do you feel at the end of these, and, like, this is, like, you know, nitpicky, and it's not necessary, but, like, sometimes, uh, do you feel at the end of those two books, specifically the ones that I've read, you know, about Trump and about men, that, you know, there was a knockout punch at the end? Like, I felt like the documentary, you, you know, does it not, right. You know what I mean? You know, I think that, you know, once you get through the, the arc of, of, of what you put together poetically and thematically and even narratively, right. that, you know, through this mass, you know, through this collection of, of found footage and documentary footage from, from news shows, right. is that, you know, like it, like it stayed with me. Thank you. I think, um, I think the other, again, I can't argue with your experience of either of Lynch, Trouble with Men, or Trump. In, indeed, I wouldn't have published those books if I didn't think they had what you call the knockout punch. To me, the knockout punch of the Trump book is that we have met the enemy and he is us, to quote the old yeah. Pogo cartoon. Right. I mean, I feel like that book is a real contribution to Trump studies, if yeah. we want to call that that, in that I hope it's not just everybody else's anti-Trump book. It locates Trump as totally a symptom of American psychosis I guess, yeah. and says we are all hugely fucked up. Trump, there's no way Trump, of course, would succeed if he weren't our worst self-realized. And I even own some ways in which, you know, whether his megalomania, his narcissism, his performative bad boyness, I think he's even is related to, he's a really talented insult comic he just is he's yeah. a gene i mean he's in some ways a genius insult comic yeah. going back to um you know some people like you know even sam kennison or sure. what's that guy um that really dirty comedian from the 80s um what was his? dice yeah he's yeah. there's very dice clay about him sure yeah and he empowers the 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 legacy of dice clay totally yeah. <laughs> and he you know he he appeals to a reptilian part of our brain yeah and that he has serious, Trump does, performative chops. Yeah. So too in the book Trouble with Men, again, if the book didn't have a knockout punch for you, I will give you your money back times two. But, um, <laughs> I got it for free. Well, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, no, I'm just, te- but anyway, the knockout punch of that book, which is probably not news to you because you've thought about all this a lot, but the, the knockout punch of Trouble with Men, in my view, is, and this is, you know, the theme of your show, of all your shows, is, you know, we are all seriously wounded. And the only thing that connects us is the scar tissue that we all have. Trauma the, bonding? Tra- I guess. Or, you know, what I call the wound in the bow. I think I did get that from that. Like, you know, like I, th- that did land with me pretty well. The, the, the wound talking. <laughs> See, you, the books did have uh, yeah, they a did. knockout punch. You were just um, hiding from the knockout punch those books delivered. And no, they, na- they, they, they form in my brain. Exactly. You know, like, you, you know, I guess I get used to the idea of a punchline. And, you know, when you when you do what you do and you kind of got to move through it and you you kind of got to stay in it. Right. So everything kind of comes together. But, yeah, like I, I, I like I didn't refresh myself before I talked to you. But, yeah, the wound, uh, you know, t- I, I think I wrote something out of my notebook uh, uh, that that I thought of probably in relation to that. 
right about, well, about the talking wound. Well, the thing I like to say, sort of my little mantra, is collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled. By which I mean that may sound a little bit fancy, but um, the point being. Collage is not just, oh, right. okay. the literary it. collage is not this thing in which you just throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and hope no. something sticks and right. call it, you know, spaghetti bolognese, but that, you know, I argue, you know, again, I have some skin in the game, collage is a lot harder to pull off and do well than conventional narrative, because if you do a conventional narrative, you have a solid baseline. Yeah, A plus B you know, plus the end. Yeah, someone was talking with you about that, someone <laughs> yeah, who was doing right. whatever, but anyway, that, um... <laughs> I want the reader to feel like, oh my God, these pieces do come together. All these shards of contemporary life that we think of as not forming yeah. a unity. You know, in this experience of Shields' book, which, you know, is, is my best readerly experience, it's not, you know, that many people or some people have that experience of the you experience. Well, you know, okay, some interesting pieces. I'm not sure yet they've come together for me. I would just say, Please read it again and more carefully. No, I think I you think, know what I mean. I don't. I you know I I wanted to sort of you know push back a little, but I'm sure. a fan. You know, I Thank mean, I, I I mean, I wouldn't have you here. I of mean, course. There, there there are certain books and like I I didn't I was intimidated, but but there are certain books that come through. I don't know what they are. And when I look at your books, I'm like, you know, what the fuck is this? Where, right. where is this guy coming from? Then I got to go talk to my buddy Sam Lipside and like go like, you know, who's this guy Shields? What's he up uh-huh. to? Yes, Sam yeah. and I are pals. Sounds like you guys are pals. And we're, Sam, yeah, we're good friends. Sam's yeah. the best. Yeah, yeah, he's a wonderful writer and. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, I think Sam is an interesting, instructive, you know, he and I are interested in a lot of the, the same things. Comedy as a veil for yeah. sadness, you know, sort of. <laughs> it, you, know. you say that like it's an intentional thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a react it's it's, it's a, a reality. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's an instinctive thing, right? And <laughs> that you know he I think has a stronger narrative gene. I just think when they had definitely a narrative guy. Yeah, when they handed out plot, I just said what you know. I don't know what that is. I mean, I just you know I'll go to a movie with my wife and I can tell her immediately yeah. after thirty seconds what the movie's themes are. Right, but I have no fucking idea what happened. I can't follow plot. But is that like uh, uh, some sort of pathology? No, I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course. <laughs> you always yeah, want to go to pathology. Is, it, is that a specific type of autism where I can't exactly. follow the story? Like, I really am amazingly bad at following plot. Like, I can follow a plot. I'm terrible with it when I but, read a script. But often, oh, right, in the sense that you're so like, okay, in the format, why am I the doing The formats that? bothers Right. Me. Like, you know, I can't, no, it's like I read it, but I can't picture it when it's just a script form. I, I, I need it right. a little more right. thorough, you know, and I can't hold on to things. I think that's one of the reasons you appeal to me, and I, I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, put you on the defensive. No, but, that's fine. But no, but it's odd because Sam, I think, went the other direction because I think Sam's first novel, The Subject Steve, is difficult and, and the plot is difficult and it, and it is sort of fragmented. Right. And and then he sort of became more uh, conventional mm-hmm. in, in chasing down these things and the humor uh, became richer, you know, as he became mm-hmm. more plot heavy. Right. You, you know. Right. I mean, one, you know, one writes the books that one can write and then that later that one goes back and justifies that with some sort of artistic credo. You know, as I say, I wrote these three conventional novels in my early or or my mid to late 30s. I was trying to write my fourth novel, and I just found those gestures, I found, you know, dull. And, you know, if the 
if the writer is bored, the reader will be bored. Well, I think that's true, and I, and I think that the <clears throat> hardest thing when you read conventional novels is that you know a lot of times I used to have a hard time finishing the last ten pages because I knew it was going to be disappointing. Sure. No matter what it was. I know what you mean. That like that there's something about the landing of a novel, usually, and I don't read a lot of novels because I'd rather read a book like yours in a sense, where you have this weird, you know, mixture of things that are just kind of being thrown at your brain than stay in the game with a novel because like it has to be really well re- referred to me you know like somebody has to say you gotta you know try I love right has got to say you got to read this you right. know i mean but, i don't but I'm, the endings are always sort of like nah, you know i mean you know. i feel like that's a real sign of how truly unfulfilling an awful lot of conventional narratives are if the ending is this weird letdown yeah that's a sign that you have not been on a really serious journey to me because that ending ought to feel, you know, existentially revelatory. I find Eleanor Coppola's film Hearts of Darkness yeah. a better film than Apocalypse Now. I, I I think that's arguable. And so that's sort of my that's my model. This weird subterranean work that cuts to the chase more directly and more powerfully than all that architecture of you know. Of pyrotechnics, yeah, I get that. If you and, see what I mean, no, I, it, it works for me, you know. And I and I think I just I, I'm in this weird sort of uh, space in my head now, where you know I pummel my brain with you know garbage out of my phone every morning, in the form of whatever news I'm following. And I have uh, the reason why your style speaks to me is I have a a, a fundamental sort of inability to compartmentalize or, or kind of emotionally prioritize uh, what's coming into my brain. Everything sort of comes in hot, you know, no matter what it is, you know, whether it's me making a cup of tea or, or the news. It's all connected. Yeah, it's connected, but it, it kind of happens at the same frequency. Right. And and then what's happened to me lately is like, I'm, I, I think some of my short-term memory is being annihilated by the amount of information I'm sure. dumping into my head every day. So like the way, you know, you're, you select... You know, it's clear that there's an editorial process. This isn't spontaneous. I should hope so. I mean, they they pretend to be these casual I'm talking about your work. I know, that's what I mean. Well, I mean, I curate the hell out of these things. Yeah, I can tell. I mean, I spend years getting the mix right, and it's sort of like saying, you know, you look at, say... But anyway, I mean... How is that process? What I I guess my point is, is it works for me because, you know, there is a context. It is compartmentalized. You've taken the time to make these decisions, but it kind of goes in in the modern way. Right, you, you know what I mean? It's like boom, pack it, boom, right. yeah, pack it, boom. Like, and then my brain kind of puts them all together because you've contextualized them. Whereas now, if I'm flipping through news stories, there's not right. There's no context other than my phone and my fear. That's a nice connection. I don't know if you're a David Foster Wallace fan. I was a big fan of Wallace's yeah. essays. The novels do relatively little for me, but but Wallace's essays yeah. I really like. I think some of them you would love. But that Wallace had this wonderful answer somebody asked him laura miller at salon asked him what's so great about literature why does literature matter and he said that we're existentially alone on the planet you can't know what i'm thinking and feeling and i can't know what you're thinking and feeling and literature at its best is a bridge built across the abyss of human loneliness strikes me as a really beautiful answer yeah and i would argue again somewhat self-justifyingly of my own work that my work at its best is this really, I hope, lovely bridge between myself and the reader. Because if the work works, and it doesn't work for everyone, the reader starts to feel how it actually sort of feels to be inside of my weird little brain. Right. So it's like, oh my God, that 
text you got in the morning is related to that Instagram post you had here, you yeah. know, to continue with your yeah. analogy about how it's it's very modern. And oh my God, you know, all these different layers, the political level, the cultural level, the anthropological level, the deep confessional level. And I think that brings us back to your first question is, you know, why not sort of do that conventional, let's just say, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, like Mary Carr, Tobias Wolf, you know, um, good, solid, yeah. modern memoir. Right. And that I find it more exciting to show how everything is connected. My problem is, is that like, I'm always looking, like if I don't, like when I look at your books and I've talked about this with me, you know, with other things, if I find it confounding, you know, it, whether, you know, I understand your structure and I understand how it all pieces together and I understand the poetry of it and I understand the form of it, but like I, I initially come away thinking like, am I getting this right. or, is, or is he fucking with me? That was the question the, the publisher asked of, of my first collage book, Sonny Maida at Knopf. <laughs> yeah. And he, he published my first work of yeah. literary collage called Remote, Reflections on Life in the Shadow of Celebrity. Yeah. Sounds like the subtitle of half of the stuff that you do. Yeah, but, um, it's the, that's a sub, that's a subtitle <laughs> on my podcast. Right, exactly. <laughs> and we'll, we'll be suing. Yeah, there. we'll be suing, yes. Oh, good. But um, Sonny Maida said, you know, I think there's something there. Is David really doing this? Or yeah. is he just sort of fucking around? Right. And, you know, I couldn't be more serious. No, and I think, yeah, I you know, that. but it's sort of like, um, you know, I it's all about the undertow. You know, like I just, I, I don't, it's something in me that resists handing the meaning to a reader on a silver platter. You know, to me, it's more exciting when the reader has that, OMFG moment of like Christ, this stuff is connected. Well, it's all rather connected. than me spelling it out a la like you know who's a journalist that I like. Let's say Michael Lewis or somebody like that. Like it's all pretty much spelled out and the meaning is there. But it feels to me sort of more artistic and poetic, and frankly more moving. It's the way I work, and you know some people have connected it to my childhood stutter. You know I had a really bad stutter as a kid, and my second novel, Dead Languages, is a sort of autobiographical novel about stuttering. And there's a sense in which my kind of, you might call it herky-jerky, stop and start, disfluent narrative yeah. is sort of a nicely metaphorical representation of stuttering. Because, you know, you write a conventional novel, it has a sort of a fluent fluidity to it. And my work has a kind of I hope a kind of stuttering poetry, if that if well, that I think makes so. sense. And, I, it may, and, and again, the more I think about it, the you know, I'm, uh, I'm glad I'm talking to you because even like today, like I, I I don't do many Instagram posts and I just do them spontaneously. But I'm, I I I literally said, well, you know, authoritarianism is uh, authoritarianism is happening, and uh, I'm going to be in Raleigh uh, tomorrow through Saturday. I'm going to go look at some pottery because I like pottery. But mm -hmm. but so. It, you decide the context, but those things are connected. I mean, authoritarianism and my desire to look at pottery. Do totally. I, do I, right. So do I have to, you know, have an answer as to why other than my desire? Or is it, you, you know, is is the, the pottery some sort of uh, kind of remedy, you know, to, to, to my fear and to the political realities? And, and so I think that's the space you're leaving. That's right? a really lovely example because I would argue – the pottery is connected to the Trump authoritarian regime. I'm not sure what it is, yeah. but I feel like the challenge of being alive and sentient now, mm. 
let's call it, you know, around August 1st of 2019, is to say, like, how are these different parts of our lives connected? Well, yeah. we can go f- from there to our fathers then. So, <laughs> so yeah, I yeah. am assuming that... Well, I think he- that's a great connection. Trump, you know, his father was famously dictatorial, authoritarian, demolished Trump. I don't think Trump has felt a thing for 60 years. Yeah. He's utterly <laughs> numb, utterly yeah. without yeah. any any pleasure at all. Yeah. Hates his father in unbelievably profound ways. And this is a little bit glib and armchair psychology yeah. on my part, but he clearly is visiting that punishment on the rest of us sure. that he never articulated is toward it, the father. But Yeah. Isn't that funny though, this sort of glib armchair psychology thing? Because that you know, I remember at the beginning of the administration that that was a full press on behalf of the uh, intellectuals in the world. The father and, and Trump, you well, mean? Well, just the armchair psychologizing right. about, you know, the Trump. nature of this guy's, uh, you know, pathology. And right. then it just, like, didn't work. <laughs> it, it didn't it, take him down, yeah. It's just like, it just keep, you know, it, it just, you keep coming at it. It's just a, it's a wall of shamelessness. Sure. That is, like, you know, it's impenetrable. You probably know Louis Theroux's work. Yeah, you know, sure, the I talked to him. Did he... he he has a wonderful line in the Trump book in which he says, in a culture of shame, i.e. America, yeah. being shameless gives you, i.e. Trump, enormous leverage and power. I think it's really the key to Trump's strategy. I think so. I strategy. think that they, they, Isn't that a brilliant law? Lo- it is. It's, it's the nature of, you know, it all just coincides with sort of the end game of capitalism where, you know, you mine people's desires to the point where they no longer really know what they are, what they're attached to. So they don't have any real anchor to their personalities in general. You know, the, the, the fact that the, that confounds me and I'm trying to deal with it comedically is that you know, that the brain turns out to be a, you know, a very primitive recording device, it, you know, it, outside of survival mode, you know, it's just very willing to attach, you know, real belief to garbage be- based on feelings. And and it's and it, repetition. Yeah. 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 Repetition is, is a, a tool for branding and for fascism. You know, it, so it's all sort of happening. You know, the, the end times prophecies of Christianity are, are sort of dovetailing with this sort of late stage capitalism. And, you know, one someone's hedging their bets. Do you have any as a stand up yeah. yourself? Do you have any particular insights into how Trump manages to be the performative black magician that he is like I'm not a stand-up comedian I'm a writer and uh, I can analyze it but he has mad performance chops and I'm wondering if you have a specific observation as a practitioner well when I talk to comics I think the the one he's got several gifts most of them horrible right but But, they're gifts but he's also has this incredible capacity to make people feel great like, you know, all the comics I've talked to have had experiences with him because he was around. You right. Know, he was just one of the, uh, this weird, fr- freaky guy. But Jackie Mason was the guy I was oh, trying to think of. That guy's a fucking monster. But, I've yeah. heard that, but yeah. Uh, but no, but like Trump is a sort of like a, a tremendous, like, huckster salesman. He sure. really can make you, like, you know, you, you talk to him and he makes right. you feel like a million bucks sure. just to be hanging around That's him. just classic salesmanship. No, though. totally. I mean, that, you know, that's just like the oldest trick totally. in the book. Totally. And, and like, and he can, he, they, the fact that he's become this portal for the worst, most corrupt, fucking shameless garbage out of the religious sector, out of the business sector, out of the graft sector. It's just, he's, it, he, when people compared him to Hitler, I was like, no, he's Satan. He's uh-huh, like, that's he, good. He, that, he's like, he, if you're going to believe in prophecy, this guy is the guy. I mean, Satan you know, had to be charming. He had to have skills. Sure, he always has the best lines. The yeah. best lines are always Satan's. Yeah. And, you know, just think of how much more interesting Trump is than, say, you know, Hillary. I mean, he just was a more gal- 
galvanizing figure. I mean, but he's he, also a chaos addict, right? Like, you know, like you know, he you know he can r- remain powerful as long as everything around him is just in complete chaos. He just he loves it. He thrives on it. Whereas Hillary, you know, you're gonna yeah, it's a management position. Sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> my know? latest thought about it is that you know. Where are the people who are willing to blow up their career in order to save the republic? Where is the IRS agent who just simply throws Trump's would it audits, do- you know, t- his tax reports online? Where is the person at, at Deutsche around. Bank at, at Deutsche Bank who just presses send? But wait, but they're around. But the problem is, is that you know, if you really have, like, I think the the biggest problem is if you really have an, a large portion of the population that no longer has any sort of barometer for facts or right. truth. I mean, and they're who he's counting on. You know, you, it you doesn't. Can, I know you can counter any fact, right? And you can put it into a. You can wedge it into a conspiracy. You can dismiss right. it, right? And and. And a frightfully large part of the population will be like, it is bullshit. Right. Because the bullshit guy said it was bullshit. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I think to me what's interesting, because it's easy for us as supposedly woke white guys to say it all, but it's sort of like, it's not clear to me how you push back. Because everyone says, oh, you know. It's the biggest trick. If I were there in Nazi Germany in 1933, I'd have been terribly prescient. I would have been this very brave no, you wouldn't. I mean, you might have, but you know, here we are. This is real. This is nineteen thirty-three. Yeah, but, but yeah, but exactly. And 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 if you think and yet about it's that, it's not. It's not. You know, he's not. No, it's overtly. not going to go that way. Yeah, he's going to rely on you know weird sporadic events by militia operations mm-hmm. and 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 loners with guns mm-hmm. and just you know the the fact that you know most people in places that aren't big cities are afraid to talk at work it, it's going to be it, it's an internal censorship the totalitarianism of the authoritarianism is going to be regulated by us as individuals because of the nature of the narcissistic personality that, or, or culture that we live in right so the, i don't think those people exist because they're 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 concerned about themselves and by the way, the, the, the smart move turns out to be in 1933 Germany was the, to get the fuck out. Right. I mean, like, you know, whoever said they were going to stand up to it or whoever did, it didn't fucking matter. The smart right. ones fucking left. Right. But I think, you <laughs> know, for me, play. <laughs> I guess to me, what's interesting for me is that, I mean, it's more than interesting. It's rather uh, traumatizing, you know. Rational discourse, a la, let's say, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, who yeah. I'm a fan of, but it's not doing anything. It's just preaching to the proverbial choir. On the other hand, who is that person who can fight demagoguery with demagoguery? That doesn't play well on the left. You know, who would be that person who would have as much uh, stage presence, camera presence, possibly a Kamala Harris well, or sure. somebody? You know, like, and but, so for me, how to dismantle, I mean, basically Trump is an assault upon discourse itself. That's his magic discourse, potion. Discourse, democracy, culture. But anyway, all rationalism. All rational discourse is over with him. It's all, all circus, all circus antics. And so basically it's not clear to me, is how, it clear to you, how do you fight, as you say, chaos addiction? Yeah. He sort of knows America, obviously, love circuses because he loves circuses yeah he's the elephant you know he's the elephant that we're cleaning up after so part of it is is bully psychology i'm fascinated by bullies and i've thought are you one uh 
I've been bullied as a kid. I was, you know, I was like the one Jewish kid among my jock friends. I had yeah. the speech impediment. I was this lefty kid amidst my suburban San Francisco conservative friends. And I was, you know, seriously bullied. I think, you know. Because I have bully in me. I'm certainly capable of being of being, of being a bully, yeah. you know, in, in minor ways right. at work. But I'm not wildly bullied. Right. But to me, a lot of it is, is bully... 101 the bully's always a baby in disguise we sure. all know that how do you go after a bully you go after him every step of the way the moment he sees ground the bully will take it and then beyond that i can't play it out like he has you know literally as they say the bully pulpit you know <laughs> he has the presidency so how do you go after the bully when the bully has this enormous megaphone like i just know I don't know. I'm trying to find some stupid answer here. You know how? Hopefully, he has a, a brain event. He's close. He's <laughs> I mean, close. Like, you know, like if it becomes indisputable that he's, you know, you know, just mumbling and and you, you know everything's completely. I, yeah. How how far can you defend somebody? Who, I know. But getting back to something else, like the other thing that's I've been obsessed with lately, just in the last week or so, is this what we're talking about and 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 i think even in the form of of fiction and in and what you do and how we live our lives is there seems to be some intentional that we have to live in a sort of imposed personally imposed cognitive dissonance right and 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 i think that that that's in what exact sense do you in mean? the sense that like in order for us to have a quality of life that we think we've earned or deserved or want to have or if if happiness is something you're pursuing or you're at a point in your life where you'd like to enjoy it because you think it's that time you know against the backdrop of of this seemingly hopeless situation and this authoritarian right. kind of uh, momentum right. you know you struggle sort of like that comes in it fucks you up and then you're like why well, I, I want to have a nice breakfast right you know so like and i and that's really sort of weighing on me and I think that there is some element of that to 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 the the collage sort of I think that's nice connection that I would want to say that that my work is saying sorry you can't have that that nice breakfast yeah I'm going to insist as you're having that bagel and latte I'm gonna say no you cannot compartmentalize your your breakfast that way I'm gonna impose that yeah. <laughs> You know, guardian headline on that yeah. bagel right. and that that latte. Well, that's what happens. Which I think is really, I think that's a real contribution. I'm person. I'm the person who's bringing bad news to breakfast. I'm <laughs> the bad news bear. You yeah, know, in little little bits and pieces. But then know. I'm going to say again. You know, to make this case. You know, I'm gonna, I'm not just this person who's going to say, guess what? Your purchase of the pottery in Raleigh, NC, is not unrelated to the Trump authoritarianism in some way I can't quite articulate, but that, um, well, sure. It's a, it's but a, that, you know, basically I can articulate it. It's, it's, it's a sort of, uh, a kind of like desire to get to something sort of organic to something, you know, handmade, that's to something, nice. something authentic, unique and yeah. authentic and, and a craft and a, a craftsmanship and, and sort of a life behind it. Somebody that's toiled lovely. over a wheel, you know, in, 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 on a heart level. Exactly. You know, that is the only thing we have is the humanity of the pot. Exactly. I mean, you probably know, or do you know the Kuleshov effect? in film that basically if you juxtapose two things together you have a boy who's oh there's a Russian thing yeah the, where the, you are looking at you know the you language have, of montage yeah you have right. a boy yeah. and then you have a rushing train you yeah. have the boy and the bowl of soup right. you have right. a bowl sure. and a mother that we see that the boy very differently based on what that's he the thing that Eisenstein took yeah. off on 
that you know that and he, that yeah that's all a film and yeah. it's in a way my work in which uh you know watch me juxtapose in the marshawn lynch film a you know let's say 1920s lynching yeah. with some media press conference and watch the shrapnel play out or you know in the trump book you know again to use our analogy you know watch what happens when we push the pottery up against authoritarianism and that basically it's not just that sort of simple juxtaposition but if we do let's say sort of 500 of these juxtapositions watch how they're building a larger argument i like it you know i mean so yeah i like it i you know i I like that you're uh, fleshing that out for me i thought that was like you know obviously the the name lynch you know has its implications and that those are intentional but but uh, you know there some memorable thing one of the more memorable you know fucking 12 seconds of of you know what is you know a, a 500 you know 15 to 30 seconds two minute pieces was i don't know where it came from but that southern guy saying we're afraid of a reprisal that's an amazing passage i mean that but that was like you know that's like the portal in it really is to I mean, to the whole why it's the answer to why it really is that's an a staggering passage in the film i mean for those few people in the world who have yet to see the film um, <laughs> um it's um this fellow with a, a southern accent in just a few seconds he's, he he explains the last sort of 400 years of american history and really our moment he says that we are a, white people are afraid of retribution and then he adds a couple of yeah. other words and you know he basically owns american guilt and that you know there's black rage and white fear and that is you know it's the undergirding of and, and the fear that you know because it can't be owned exactly. it becomes rage exactly precisely which is you mm-hmm. know that explains the 40 million people of the trumpian mm-hmm. base absolutely and yeah. trump plays to it you know almost hour by hour because you know <clears throat> if the, the options with fear are you know a movement through it an understanding of it you know, grief, acceptance, right. humility, or, or you know, uh, I think uh, the, the shame that that is the shame. So if you right. if you're gonna you know, be one of those sort of like you know fuck that like the one thing like uh, deflect, deflect, deflect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then then all of a sudden, if you're empowered to go like no, no, fuck them. Right. I mean, it's just it's so the end, that's the end of discourse. That, exactly. I mean, it's just cla- I mean, it's like the you know as you 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 may know is you know Trump. For years, had Hitler's speeches on his bedside table. That's just a fact. You know, it's reported by many people, and um, he's gone to school on all that. I I think so. I I don't like the the idea that he's just like shooting from the hip. I I think he he did have a plan. Totally. You know, when he knows that he can um, harvest the AOC squad, or I mean, he he has relatively reptilian instincts for those moments whether going after yeah. Elijah Cummings right. or he's going after Baltimore that he, that he uses of course the classic language of stigmatization scapegoating demagoguery so he, you know every it's just classic you know calling people animals calling them vermin i mean it's all just so standard and that i don't know it's just so it's so easy to be sort of having shared misery but but what's the route out you, you just want to say to people i mean that you travel the country probably more than I do, you know, 
do you ever try and talk to Trumpian voters and say, don't you see what he is doing? And do you get zero response back? Well, no, no. I mean, I know a couple of people like, you know, one guy in particular who I like and who I think is funny. And, you know, he is of that ilk. And he's Christian. He's a Southerner. You know, he you know, he doesn't know a lot necessarily, but he you know, he goes with the flow. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the general you know consensus around that is like they, they don't care if he's full of shit. You know, they he is servicing an emotional satisfaction for them. And he's also facilitating, you know, everything the Republicans have been working on for 30 years. So once you're willing to to uh, be an apologist in the way like, yeah, he's crazy, then it's all it's lost. It's over. I agree. I I think the key is that, you know, he's giving financial satisfaction to a relatively small group of people. That's right. Just but emotional satisfaction. But emotional satisfaction to a wide swath. I mean, just trying a billiard shot here, trying to connect up Lynch, film, Trouble with Men, and the Trump book. I mean, I'm just somehow what you were saying, sort of I was seeing some connections, which I'm not sure I can quite bring to consciousness, but something to do with my go-to move, I guess, which is the great liberating movement to me, whether it's the Trumpian base, whether it's sort of sexuality and dominance and submission. To me, the great liberating gesture, which I find sort of freeing, is, to be honest, to own your own woundedness. Yes. Which, you know, I know is your go-to move, too. But, you know, and then, to me, that's what's so powerful about, say, Marshawn Lynch, is that he, I'm not sure if he owns his own woundedness, but he manifests resistance to the dominant cultural discourse in this very powerful way. And so if I see, you know, the three things of mine that we've been talking about, you know, like I see... What but I, that, that speaks to a historical wound. Total. And right. that's a great connection. Right. And that what I really love, the people, the artists I love from ancient writers to very contemporary writers are people, and maybe this is why I'm such a collage writer and filmmaker, is that that collage work tends to bring together people who tend to be wounded. Yeah. E.M. Sharon was, you know, famously dark, pessimistic, sad. Well, I, I definitely know what that, because I, I speak from the wound, and I, and I know right. who my audience is. Right. I see them. And even, <laughs> even say, Nietzsche, Pascal, all, yeah. the, all the great collage writers were um, famously broken. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a way, if you're, if you're more, you know. And that's why it makes sense that they write like that. Precisely. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like it's like, that's all I could write on that. Exactly. <laughs> because I'm so depressed, I have to I go have back to and on. lie down. Yeah. Or, or it's sort of like next thing. Like exactly. That, that, that salve, you know, helped me through that moment. That's nice. Right. Almost like these little packets right, like, of uh, of grief bomb. Right. You know, like boom, right. boom, boom. Like jokes. Yeah. Like I they, mean, I was so influenced by stand-up as a kid. You know, I was I grew up in San Francisco and on, I think, KNBR, yeah. you know, they would have from 8 a.m. till 12 noon all the great stand-ups of that time that could go on on well, radio. I think, like I have said before, is that, like, for me, the reason stand-up was, was what I was destined to do was that these guys had a handle on things and they, they could present, you know, l- large ideas you know, very quickly and, and, and give you some closure. Like if you, if you were raised by, you know, self-involved parents or bipolar father, like you said, you're not getting much closure on your sense of self. So there's a sort of like these tendrils of like, you know, how do I, what is my identity that, you know, in a 
intellectually, if you if you watch a stand up, you're like, oh, that guy's got a handle on that, right? And it, and it just happened in 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 fifty seconds, exactly. And now I can get you know that that'll cap that for now. Like a friend of mine once said, he said, what I like about your work is that it's weirdly utilitarian. Th- that is to say. I'm trying to create toolkits that are actually sort of useful for people's lives. Yeah, like, a reference point. Like, where, like, you know, like here's how to think about Trump. Here's, yeah. I think, how to think about sex. Here's how to think about, say, race and sports. And it's like, I think of the work as sort of, you know, as interventions of No, sort. no, I, I, I like that. And, and I agree with you. And I think that's why it probably resonates with me because, like, I am a, 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 a big fan of, of great lines, right? Yeah, you know, that that, and I think it is poetry, and you know, and by avoiding the sort of um, contextual trap of being a poet, right, like a capital P poet, right? Yeah, right. you know, where where it's already sort of once removed from from you know cultural language in a way, right? But you know, freeing yourself to do this quashing and have bits and pieces that work together in a poetic fashion, you know, there's a little something for everybody where you don't have to labor exactly. You know, over, you know, like, what the fuck does this mean? Right. I mean, I like the way it feels when I say it, but I did not. But uh, but like like there was a guy that Dan Vitale used to do this line about you know like uh, you know being fucked up, and he, the line was like you know when you hit bottom, folks. You'd be surprised at just how much give that floor has. Let's see, that's beautiful. <laughs> and it's the word give. Like yeah. it's give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Like that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. That's that, lovely. That's a good one. That's I like beautiful. That one. I w- yeah. So when you were coming up, I, you know, in this environment that was, you know, it seemed like your parents had, you know, loftier agendas than, than parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, what? How, how did that, in retrospect, in, in your self uh, kind of uh, in, in inspection, what kind of trajectory did your father's bipolarity send you on? You know, like how mm-hmm. did that affect, you know, your creativity or your choices in life? Well, that's a big one, obviously. I mean, I've written about it in part. I'm trying to think of how to answer that in a way that... Is he alive? Is, no. Uh. My dad died at 99. Mm. And my mom died a while ago as well. So, I mean, it's huge. I think um, my father's, what we called manic depressive. Yeah. So for me, there's... But you know what's amazing, though? It's like he died at 99? Yeah, it was this sort of... So he didn't kill himself. No, tried many times. <laughs> and he? failed many times. You know, he would drive to the Golden Gate Bridge virtually monthly, threatening to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> My dad used to drive around with a gun in his car, but we is weren't sure an, who he wanted to use it on. Exactly. Yeah. And he's... Was this in Albuquerque? Yeah. Or? And that, you know, basically the line I flash on is I quoted in Trouble with Men this rather devastating line in which... An ex-girlfriend says, your father never taught you how to be a man, Mm. which was rather a nasty line, but that it stayed with me that basically when people- that's one of those ones. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, that basically when I think of paternity, and I'm, you know, a terribly devoted father to my 26-year-old daughter, and I'm very much a father to her, but, you know, basically the point being like masculinity was- problematized to me from the very beginning that my mother was this rather draconian authoritarian you know dominant figure Mm. you know quite harsh you know Mm -hmm. quite chilly quite distant perhaps as she needed to be given my father's evacuation of that station you know he was shuttling back and forth to electroshock treatments at 
the mental hospital. Yeah. And so for me, it was the evacuation of masculinity. Like I used the whole idea of man being authoritative and mother being nurturing. Yeah. I have no idea what that, that even means. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like to me, my mom was not in any way classically nurturing and my dad was just like the empty patriarch. You know, right. He was just, and so for me, that would be, the beginning of it. And then you sort of laid on to it, you know, and I've been, you know, hugely influenced by my parents. I mean, I am their son in the sense I am a writer the way they were. Yeah. I'm politically engaged, not as overtly as they were, but I am politically engaged. But, Wait, I think, but you said earlier that you have a, a, an aversion to that. What is it? Well, the aversion is, you know, I'm not a political pamphleteer you know yeah. i try to you know some of my work like say war is beautiful the new york times yeah, pictorial guide that, yeah because i have that that's the coffee table book that's the david shields coffee well table the anti-coffee table book. right but it is it's, it's on a table you know and that it, book what was is, the idea of it is a critique of new york times war photography in which i was arguing that at the new york times for years during the iraq and afghanistan war wars they were running appallingly beautiful pictures on a <laughs> weekly level of of those wars seemingly oblivious that you can't just run color pics on page one every few days and not have that be sending unbelievably powerful cheerleading subliminal messages. Well, how many photographers were they drawing from? You know, dozens around oh, really? the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they were tended, you know, and that was an interesting but does that have something to do with the evolutionary evolution of photography? I mean, that's what people would push back is like, hey, yeah, yeah. people can make amazingly beautiful pics. Right. But I studied every front page of the Times from 1991 to 2012. Yeah. And I could not find a single example of a picture that captured to me anything like the hell of war. That seemed to be a relatively conscious decision mm. to have the design department running the war department right. that basically I argued you know that famous line war is hell yeah. to me in the times it was like war is heck viewed from a very far distance because you know the times frankly its audience is not going to war those wars are far away yeah. whereas say during Vietnam it might be a New York Times reader who would having to serve in Vietnam right. so anyway the book it, yeah. the book argues that Anyway, that's the first book of mine that, in a way, fulfills my parents' mission of trying to create overtly political work of art. But in general, in previous books of mine, whether a book like Black Planet, Facing Race During an NBA Season, or earlier books, are more skeptical of by-the-book liberal agenda. I'm, you know, I don't think we have solutions to life's problems. I'm a total a tragedian. Like I just think that we're fucked, you know, yeah. both on an individual level and on a cultural level that, you know, I think the planet's doomed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Whereas my parents' whole agenda was, we're going to solve life's problems. And I just think, you know, I became devoted to art. You know, there's that wonderful line of Schopenhauer who says, may the world perish, let truth prevail is a rather awful thing to say, kind of fascistic, <laughs> but I'm sort of in bed with that. I want, trying to tell the truth matters more to me than anything else. It doesn't sort of mean I'm right, but Your I, truth, though. Like, yeah, it, it exactly. It seems like, you know, when you, you, when you take into consideration you know, in terms of philosophy and in terms of, 
you know, being a tragedian is that, you know, it, it just seems that, you know, might, might partnered with bullshit. Totally. Yeah. I, I don't say I'm right. No, yeah. but that, you know, that becomes. Oh, might partner with bullshit. Right. Might, you know, that, that becomes a prevailing truth, you know, which, you know, fascism is seeking to solve the same problem. Of course. Well, that's where it gets scary <laughs> yeah. is that, you know, that's what the Trump book tries to get into. You know, I say at one point in the book, Trump is the world's worst, best personal essayist because he 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 wires everything through himself. Right. The way that in a way that your stand-up act does, yeah. the way that my writing does, yeah. the way a lot of the a- actors and comedians and yeah. and mo- monologists do. I mean, you probably I assume that you. Sh- share my admiration of people like say Spalding Gray sure. and Joe Frank yeah. you know it's like you know everything got wired th- through them Spalding Gray couldn't be involved in a, a movie about Cambodia without sending it back to him right. and in a way Trump is weirdly like them and oh, yeah. like sure. us sure. for deeply nefarious reasons but he mythologizes himself oh, right. immediately exactly and I, I tried to make a line work on stage where I'm like you know that uh, you know Trump is the it was just like he's, you know, he he's 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 the best narcissist because he succeeded in actually making everything about him, literally everything. Exactly. Like, and that I guess to me the big question for him, among many, I'm curious what your take is. Does he know he's full of shit, or is he has he actually convinced himself, or and are his politics as awful as he pretends, or is there part of like for instance, I'm sure he's paid for numerous abortions but he pretends to be again oh, no him. no yeah I think like he, for instance how aware is he of the shtick I, well i i think he i you know I, I think he's like i think it's i i think it's instinctual but i think he you know in his quiet moments with people he trusts he's just a you know straight up asshole but i think he knows the con job i mean i think Does that's he? I, I definitely i think that's right I think that's. I mean, right. I don't think he says. You know, he plans what he's going to say. No, but he says, "Just watch this. I'm going to make right. these I people." Right. I think that's right. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm, that's watch right. what I can do. Exactly. I think he has that. I agree. Yeah. So, so ultimately, you you think that this new film? It seems to be that, you know, whatever medium you're working with, this seems to be you know, uh, you know, the evolution of everything you do. Like this is. You would say that you know it, it doesn't matter whether it's a book or or the you know the the pictures in the war is beautiful uh, or or this film. This seems to be a a, a perfectly um, realized uh, piece of art, you know, based on your approach. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I you mean in a sense the Marshawn Lynch film yeah. in particular. I mean, I think I mean it is a funny evolution where you the first novel i wrote published my god 35 years ago it was just a that one review actually in the la um weekly said it's almost a parody of the conventional novel the first book i wrote was just unbelievably straight ahead novel yeah you know all the standard things and then over the last sort of 35 years you know i've written over 20 books and just almost step by step by step by step they've gotten less linear yeah less narrative less plotted more pixelated, more montage more mm-hmm. collage-like. And, you know, I think there would be a way to argue the Lynch film, bringing together politics, race, sports, collage, is, you know, 
I hope I have more gestures to make, but it does seem like well, no, a nice gathering of my impulses. Yeah, I don't think it's like the end, but no, I'm just saying right. that it seems to be exactly what you're working towards. Seemingly. Yeah, you know, in in, in that, like, I, I imagine that drawing from, you know, images uh, is is probably, I would, I would imagine, you know, kind of labor intensive, but somewhat more exciting than drawing from words. I mean, to me, it's the whole thing of, yeah, exactly. I mean, part of me feels like I'm running out of words in certain right. ways. I mean, maybe like, say, going back to Trouble with Men, like, I didn't have more to say about it. Like, this was as much as I could say. I mean, part of it with the Marshawn Lynch film was that the we approached him and said, you know, would you like to participate in the film? His eloquence is his silence, or his yeah. silence is, oh, so thankfully, Lynch said no, yeah. that I won't block it, but I won't participate either. Necessity being the the mother of invention, if that's the right phrase, you know, that we said, okay, we have no Marshawn Lynch. L let's scour the web. Let's find every clip that we can ever find. Let's intercut them with quotes and American history. And this plays to my strains. You know, part of me was hugely relieved when Lynch said no, because it forced me back on, as you say, my my go to moves, yeah. which is. Um, calling, curation, thematizing, juxtaposition, yeah, and, and, you know, and, bring together pottery and Trump. Boom, right. watch what happens. Right, and, and, and the way you let yourself off the hook in a way, but didn't, is that, you know, your place in it was the assemblage. Precisely. And, and, and not, like, y your voice, you know. Per like, se. Right. Well, that, people, a few people want, like, the, the book that it is very loosely adapted from is a book called Black Planet Facing Race during NBA season, a book I wrote 20 years ago. I kept uh, a fan's journal of the Seattle Sonics, 94-95 NBA season. And you're season. a sports fan. I, I am. It's yeah. a, a huge guilty pleasure. and But it's also an amazing cultural theater. Sure, like that of it's you could I mean, I could tell you everything. Yeah, I wish they, I had it, but I don't. I mean, you've saved yourself tens of thousands of hours. But you're, you're your father's son, I guess. Totally. And, you know, <laughs> I've written now three or four books about sports. And, I, yeah. you know, as they say, there's nothing you need to know about American culture you cannot see through the Super Bowl. It's all freaking there, you right. know. Sure. Yeah, and right. so basically... That was a template somehow? The, the, well, the Black Planet, because yeah. that book is about race, media. And in that book... I'm very present as a guilty white liberal who sometimes has racist attitudes. Mm. I sometimes identify with the owners, sometimes with the coaches, sometimes with the media, sometimes with the players. The mm. book tries to unpack an NBA season as an inverted mirror of NBA race relations mm -hmm. at the time of Rodney King, Clarence Thomas, and the OJ trial. And yeah, I think it's a good book, but you couldn't write that book now. Yeah. You know, and so I was trying to adapt that film with the actor and director James Franco and we that we tried to do it and it just came to an end. Yeah. And that pivoted nicely in, into the Marshawn Lynch film, in which, as you say, I vanish. But again, as with the quotes, I think I'm hugely there. Sure. When I juxtapose a quote from uh, Richard Wright saying only be only jailers believe in jails with a passage from Little Boosie. Yeah, I couldn't be more present. No, yeah, no, definitely. I I think that's right. You, you know, but it's not you reflecting on you per you se know, as you. Right. And I think that if Marshawn had agreed to be part of it, you would be forced into a conversation that would have been different than what you got. I totally agree, and that 
I'm present a little bit. Like I'm, you'll, you'll hear me ask questions in the movie. Yeah. But um, I know, I think, d- does the culture at this point want to hear about the ambivalence from a middle class white Jewish filmmaker? I would argue probably not. So, yeah, but, but that's see, not the film we're dying to see, I don't think. But right. it's also, <laughs> I guess, but you know, but if you frame it like that, I mean, you, you, you know, it, it's sort of a disservice that, you know, I remember being very angry when Entertainment Tonight you know, first started airing because I'm like, you know, that that's private. You know, like you don't have news about what's going on behind the scenes. Uh huh. That and, I'm and now like, it's the whole culture. It's a whole culture, right? So, so the the thing is, is like you know, the work. You know, I, I know that it becomes part of the the criticism or the commentary around it. You know, the everybody. It's like, what about that guy? Who you know? Who is that guy? Whatever. But you know, when I watch the thing, like I have a hard time keeping all that stuff in my head. I didn't know you from anybody, and I you know I saw what the film was going to be in the first five minutes, right? And you know, and and I chose to lock in. And, and, you know, what I come out with, you, you know, I think I got, I, we, you know, I mentioned it earlier, you know, what was the through line and what I was supposed to get from it. But what I also got from it was, you know, these, it, it becomes very clear that, you know, when someone of color doesn't meet cultural expectations, that they will be, they will face a punishment. Sure. No matter what it is. And that there's, there's a great, the power of silence is a form of protest. For sure. It's very beautiful. And in fact, somebody asked me last night, I did a little event that we showed the film. Mina Kimes from ESPN was the talkback guest after the screening, and she was great, and she has a lot of good questions. And she said, you know, how did you know how to read Lynch's silence as inherently political? And sort of what you've implied, like, I was born to understand that between growing up in the Bay Area, having very political parents... Um, having a lot of black men and women living in our house throughout my childhood as my parents, you know, they were just sort of free, you know, they would have free rent in our house. Yeah. And again, going back to my little wound, you know, stuttering as a kid, I could hardly talk. And that basically I know how much anger there is in, in silence whether imposed or self-imposed. And I feel like I locked in on Marshawn Lynch's silence like super early on, like there was eloquence in that silence. You know, that's the through line in the film is it's this love song to Marshawn Lynch's politics by any means necessary. And and instinctual. Like, you know, I like, agree I, with you. I, I, that, and very you know, Oakland, incredibly Oakland. Right. He was like, you know, you know, fuck you if you think I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm here to play football. Go fuck yourself. This isn't part of the agreement, you know. And when it was imposed on him, he was still fuck you. I play football, and I'll I'll, I'll triple down on it. Yeah. Which you know, in an amazing way, is his assault on discourse. If there's a Trumpian assault on discourse over here, where Trump for an I sort of love people who break the fourth wall. Like that's, I just, you know, and I don't love Trump, but I got interested in trying to understand. I mean, I think a key thing of Trump is that he does break the fourth wall. Yeah. You know what I mean? All the time. And in a very, very different register, Lynch always always breaks the fourth wall. Well, there's an interesting thing that, you know, in in light of uh, your book and in in me not knowing anything about sports, there's a a basketball star, Blake Griffin, who, who has started doing comedy. 
Oh, and, that's and, right. Yeah. And he did a bit, and this speaks to the, another part of of what you're dealing with, but it's not as loaded. But you know, he was he did a bit with Fallon. I was on Fallon a couple of weeks ago, and he was the other guest. But he did a bit on Fallon about you, you know about the problem with being interviewed post game. Wow, I wish and I had heard. You, you should go watch it. Was this doing panel or actually doing stand up? No, it was panel. Uh-huh. Because he 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 played it out. He told sure. he, he he had Jimmy stand up and he stood up. Uh-huh. That's a great said, bit. And he said to Jimmy like, "All right, just do like 15 seconds of jumping jacks or running in place." So he had Jimmy right. do this uh-huh. and then he goes, uh, you know, and then he goes, "Okay, stop. How do you feel right now?" Exactly. That's a great bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the beginning of it, you know. And Griffin's interesting because he's biracial and he's he's very good looking. Nice and, guy. And he's you know he's 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 done a lot of successful commercials and that's fan. He's actually is doing stand up. Yes, now? he's actually wow. doing stand up. That's now. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And you know that you know like it, the absurdity. It'd be like you know the moment you came off set. You know you did a an hour and a half set. It's like, yeah. You know it's so because it's a very um, primitive. Visceral, oh, ecstatic yeah. pleasure, and, and now you're suddenly gonna ruin it. you're going to totally empty it out and turn it into platitudinous, yeah. um, corporate business Buzzkill. speak. You yeah. know, and it's like, it's, and Lynch is holding on to joy. It's so yeah, obvious. That's right. you yeah, know? it's like the best part of that uh, of the new Dylan movie, the Rolling Thunder, Rebeer which I movie. haven't seen yet. You should watch it because there's one moment that makes the whole fucking movie. Because uh-huh. I know it was genuine. Is I think he had just come off stage. You know, after performing the first concert, and he's literally walking off stage, and the guy with the camera says, "How do you feel?" And Dylan turns around and goes, "About what?" That's great. That's a great. <laughs> Dylan is the progenitor of all this, isn't he? Because sure. I mean, you go back to yeah. um, um, obviously, authenticity is a bit of a fiction, but I think what I'm interested in, what you're interested in, what Marshawn Lynch is, is in is trying to be authentic. You're going to probably fail. There will be sort of a fictional apparati that intercede, but I, I love art. I love people who are trying, at least semi-trying, to be authentic. When you say authenticity is fiction, because I've been playing with that on stage a little bit, you know, with this words, these words now, you know, like authenticity, mindfulness, doubling down. Right. Know, that, like, but for some reason, those are outstanding, normalizing. Right. Uh, but but this authenticity trip, you know, which gets hung on me, and I don't mind it. Right. I think there, but, 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 you know, there is, you know, there's 23 more hours in my day after right. I talk to you. Right. So, you know, what does it mean? What do you mean when you say authenticity is a fiction? Well, that's obviously an enormous topic. I mean, I think that... Uh, <laughs> Well, tighten it up into a little packet. You're good at that. There you go. What's my little go-to <laughs> aphorism here? Yeah. Let's see. I mean, I just think, like, I guess I would just sort of make the point that you and I are trying to have a real discussion. This sure. this feels more real than, of course, you being on Conan or whatever. Right, sure. Although, you know, it's more real. We're trying, yeah. you know, we'll swear, we'll be real, yeah. we'll cough, we'll right. hiccup. Right. And it's more real, but... You know, obviously, on some level, I'm still performing, that you're still performing. Sure. We are mask upon mask. We don't always know each other. You know, that we don't know ourselves. So I'm just sort of making that pretty standard postmodern point that it feels to me different. I don't know, the kind of work I try and do and say a novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, where it's like, it's trying to be as fantastic as possible. I'm trying to be as real as I possibly can, but let's not totally kid ourselves. I mean, there's finally my blood and bones, which will ultimately be dead. Like, 
that's real, that I will die. That's right. And also, like, I think that— And then the work, the work is trying to be real, but, you know, I might— lie at the edges all of, of course of my nonfiction work takes enormous poetic liberty well, well i think also there like there there's something about you know despite whatever we do no matter how authentic or whatever we're talking about in this moment however present or real we are you know we're still not necessarily really answering to what's going on in our heads Right, and how do we do that? It, you can't, you know. I mean, I, 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 I don't. I think we'd be in trouble if 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 you could do. But that. we try. Like for some reason, I think of like. But some, I think you do do it. I do do. I feel like I do it. I think the collage. Thank the, you. Uh, structure, you know, is is as as close as you're going to get to try to to to, to manufacturing that. It, there's a good word with, a, with that hard pressure on manufacturing. I mean, like <laughs> that. You know, my wife sometimes yeah. says. I mean, one one nice thing. That my wife says, she says, you know, ha- like if we have to write a card to someone, say a condolence card or a thank you card, you know, I just sort of, I just pull out a pen and we have a card and I just write something very direct. She goes, how do you do that in a sense? And I just feel like I have, you know, as they say, no filter. Like I have a relatively tight wire between what's in my head and what's in my hand. Like I just go there. And uh, yes, there are probably layers of bullshit there and, and layers of self-protection, but I just think, you know, 40 years of writing practice, I've built up a relatively tight um, connection between the stuff in my head, which I'm relatively not yeah. afraid of, yeah. and like that's what I'm going to say on the page. The reaction. Yeah, and I think if people like the work, they're they're saying, like, I'll meet you halfway, like, yeah. This is a bridge across the abyss of human loneliness, whereas sometimes with my work, especially a while ago, they would say, that dude's fucked up. It shields his problem, whereas I want to say it's all of our problem, and I just have the temerity and stupidity to actually say it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you do, and thank you for talking. I think <laughs> we did all right. I did too, Mark. Thank you so much. So that was, I thought that went well. I felt good after that. Um, Again, the documentary we were talking about, Marshawn Lynch, A History, is available on iTunes, Amazon, and Vimeo. His most recent book is The Trouble with Men, Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power. That's available. Now let's kind of play some dirty guitar.